0: Good morning. I have my intro, but I'll just, I'll just do it, yeah. In the 1997 science fiction film, Gattaca, anybody a fan? Yes, finally. Society has advanced to a point where potential children are conceived through genetic selection to ensure that the child possesses the best traits of both parents. But the main character, Vincent, he's conceived naturally, so his genetic profile is considered inferior. And so you the scene is, you know, the nurse, you know, gets the baby, and she's reading his genetic profile, Vincent's genetic profile, and she reads he's going to be susceptible to genetic disorder, he's going to have a heart condition, and his lifespan, is an estimated 30 years. And you can see the regret paint over his parents' faces. And they decide later on to use genetic selection for their second child, because they didn't like how the first experience went. And with the second child, they name him Anton, Anton Jr. He's the one that gets the name of the father. And of course, Anton is perfect. Growing up, the two brothers, it's fascinating. It's actually surprisingly relevant to our times. And I'm sorry because I'm going to spoil the best scene for you right now. Movie that's been out 27 years. (laughs) The scene that sticks out the most is that when the brothers are older, Anton and Vincent decide, let's play one final game of chicken. The two go out to swim at night and Vincent surprises Anton because this is where Vincent usually stops. But Vincent keeps going, and Anton is screaming, Stop! we got to go back. We're too far out. What are you doing? And Vincent just ignores him and just keeps swimming further and further. And Anton is screaming at him, How are you doing this? How are you winning? And Vincent responds, You know, you want to know how I did it? This is how I did it, Anton. I'm not saving anything for the swim back. Vincent wanted to win at all costs, and he was willing to lay it all on the line. You know, the scene highlights just how powerful it is to have a singular focus with the goal of winning. And Paul, five separate times in these verses, he mentions the word win. Paul is a winner. All he does is win, 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 no matter what. I got more laughs in the first one, first service. Some of you guys don't get it. No. Yeah. All he does is win, 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 no matter what. And the winning that Paul is talking about here is salvation. He wants to share the good news of Jesus Christ and he wants to draw the non-believer in. He wants to lure them in and win them over to knowing Christ. And what we see in our passage today is that Paul gives us an approach. A strategy rooted in persuasion, that by persuasion, we might draw others closer and experience, taste and see the mercy, grace, and love of Jesus Christ. That we would draw them in close enough so that we might be able to point them to the saving work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Three points that I divided up our time together this morning into. A firm identity, a flexible approach, all to win the prize. Three points, a firm identity, a flexible approach, all to win the prize. Point number one, a firm identity. To share the good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel effectively, you and I need to have a stable, mature, resolute, and firm identity that can only be given to you by the creator of the universe. Anything else will fade. Anything else will lose its grounding. The only identity that will withstand the test of time is the one that is given to you by the king of the universe. In other words, you need to do this out of a clear understanding of who Jesus is to you and what Jesus has done for you. To understand your true identity, you need to cultivate deep intimacy with the person Jesus Christ, not only in knowledge but in your heart. And Paul's identity was inseparable from the gospel. It was woven into his identity. Jesus, his love, his mercy, his blood, all of it on the cross. Paul was intimate with it. If you can take a look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3 to 4 with me. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 to 4. It reads this. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. The gospel is of first importance for Paul. Christ died for our sins, buried, raised on the third day. Why? For the forgiveness of sins. His heart and his soul rested in that truth. That's where he found intimacy with Christ. That was his priority, and thus, that was where he found his identity. Maybe you are familiar with the life of Paul. If not, that's okay. All you need to do is take a look at Philippians 3 to understand who Paul was before he met Christ. Because in Philippians 3, in his own words, Paul describes his identity, his boasting. He describes it in his own words. He writes, I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. I was from the tribe of Benjamin. This is the resume of resumes. It was the reason for his boasting. That was his identity. In the way that he walked and talked and engaged people, this was the first thing that he would proclaim. This is who I am. And we know that in Acts chapter 9, Paul has a visible encounter with the glory of Jesus in his resurrected form on the road to Damascus, and instantaneously Paul is converted from his identity as a Jew who keeps the Old Testament law to that of Son of Christ, rooted in the saving work of the King. That's Acts 9, 1 through 19. And Acts nine twenty, the very next verse, it tells us this. Immediately, Paul proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, he is the son of God. You see, his previous identity, his previous boast was, I'm Paul, Jew of all Jews, Hebrew of all Hebrews. But his new boast and his new identity no longer wrapped up on who he is in himself, but who he is in the proclamation of who Jesus is. To share the good news of Jesus Christ effectively with others, your identity needs to be rooted and established in the gospel. Your identity needs to be interwoven and so strongly tied in with the gospel and its presence in your life. That's where you will draw your strength. That's where you draw your courage, your direction in life, your north star, if you will. And Paul doesn't deviate from that. In today's text. In our passage today, if you take a look, Paul expresses his identity in a different way. Take a look at verse 19 with me. It reads this, for though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. Free from all, and yet servant to all. I hope you guys can see that's an oxymoron, but that's what Paul sees himself as. And I want to flush that out for us a little bit, because in Jesus, you and I both All of us in this room, if you have proclaimed Jesus as your savior, you and I are also free slaves. You see, the category of slave in the context of the Corinthian church was very well known. It was basic. It was commonplace. In the ancient Roman context, everyone understood what Paul was talking about. Because free and slave were common distinctions that were made all the time. Almost like young and old or man and woman. And so the readers understood what Paul was trying to say, but they were probably confused because the terms together, how could that be? They contradict each other. How can Paul say that he is free from all and yet a servant to all? That makes no sense. But you see, that's the argument that Paul has been trying to build all the way from last week in chapter 8 to the first half of chapter 9. He says, look, I am not culturally or financially obligated to any person or group. I am free from any and all restriction. But in my freedom, I am free to do anything. And here's what I am choosing to do. I'm going to choose to be a slave. I'm going to choose to be a servant to serve you. Why? So that I might win some to Christ. I can be anything I want. Do whatever I want. But I'm going to choose to serve you so that I can draw you closer to the Father. You might have heard this phrase before, especially if you have grown up in the church. I have the freedom in Christ to do what I want to do. I can do whatever I want, because in Christ, I am free, and it's true. I do the same thing. But oftentimes, we think about our freedom in Jesus in this light. I'm free in Christ, so I can indulge in certain pleasures of this world, and I'm free to do it. Yes, you are. I'm freeing Christ, and I'm going to exercise my freedom to satisfy my preferences, to be comfortable. And that's okay. I do that too. But here is Paul's perspective. I'm freeing Christ, and I'm going to use my freedom not to satisfy my own pleasures, not to be comfortable, but I'm going to use my freedom to serve other people. I'm going to choose to love them. I'm going to choose to be a slave to them to draw others to Christ to win them. His freedom in Jesus was a way to cultivate relationships with others, to be other-centered, to draw them into the presence of Christ. I am a slave to no one. I am free from all, but in the love and grace that has been shown to me, I am choosing to be a slave to you. His identity in Christ, the freedom he found in it, the pressures of people-pleasing, all gone. And now... I will use my freedom to serve others, to win others to Christ through word and action. Point number two, a flexible approach. You have a firm identity in the saving work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And that gives you a flexible approach. Once your identity is robustly and firmly established in thought and in heart, you have cultivated to find your strength and perspective in the good news of Jesus Christ. The gospel allows you to be flexible. It allows you to be nimble and agile in how you can relate to people, how you can talk to people, how you can approach people, how you can identify with them. Take a look at verses 20 through 22 with me. To the Jew, I became as Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not myself being under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I become all things to all people, that by all means, I might save some. You see, Paul here in these verses sees himself as to as what many scholars and theologians call the tertium quid. It's fancy, it's Latin, for the third position. And it's perfect for what he wants to do, because it is from this third position that Paul flexes and Paul pivots to serve others. You see, he's in the third position. He is not a Jew, but from this position, he will flex and pivot to be a Jew. Why? To win the Jew. From this position, he'll flex and he'll pivot to be a Gentile. He is not a Gentile, but he'll flex and pivot to act like one. Why? to act, to win the Gentiles, sorry. He's a Christian and it is from the safety and security of his identity in Jesus Christ, from this third position, he pivots and he flexes to enter and relate to different kinds of people. People in different life stages. See, Paul didn't just have friends that were in similar life stages to him. He was able to flex and enter into the lives of people in different socioeconomic statuses, different races, different personalities, different interests and hobbies. He was able to engage the strong, the leaders of this world. But he was also able to engage and relate to the weak, those who are at the back of the line, the poor, the marginalized. He says, I have become all things to all people, why? So that by all means, I might save some. He reaches out to different sorts of people with the purpose of stepping into their world, into their pain, into their joy, into their lives, to identify with them. All for the hope that they would see and experience Christ. You know, growing up in my home, for some reason we had an old vinyl. Am I saying that right? Vinyl? I guess so. Vinyl record player. I was like, why do we have this? Uh, I don't know whose it was, but it was in our house growing up. And we had some just random albums. And one of the albums that we had was a Johnny Cash album, live from Folsom Prison. Right? And I would listen to that album. I grew up liking the album. And because it was so interesting, I was struck at just the story behind the album, that Johnny Cash would go into these prisons and perform concerts for these prisoners. And in the you know the album, uh, it comes in like a huge little pamphlet. I guess you open it up, and on the inside, there's writing, and there's all these credits. But there was a letter from Johnny Cash, and it says this. It says, "Listen closely to this album. You will hear prisoners scream, You will hear them groan, you will hear them shout, and you will hear them laugh, as they identify with the lyrics, with the music, with me, and as I identify." with them. See, Johnny wanted to start performing concerts in prisons because as a young man, he was in and out of the prison system. He understood where they were at, and he wanted to do something for them. And you know what the interesting thing is, the first concert that he had was not in Folsom. It was at the prison in San Quentin. And in the audience of that first concert was a young man, and his name was Merle Haggard. And if you're familiar. Merle Haggard is a country music legend, a country music icon. And there he was in the prison listening to Johnny Cash. See, Merle Haggard had no direction in life and at 18, he found himself for the fourth time in prison. But one night, he found himself in a concert performed by Johnny Cash. And Merle Haggard recalls the concert and he writes this. This is in his own words. Johnny came in and he wasn't singing great at all. His voice was shot from partying all night in San Francisco the night before. And no one was really getting it. But eventually the crowd was run won over. Because he did everything the prisoners did. He had their attitude. He sang their songs. He was a mean mother from the South. And he was there because he loved us. You see, that concert changed Haggard's life. He got out of prison and decided to pursue a dream in music. And what we see Cash doing here is what we hear from Paul and what he is saying that we ought to do. I love the words that Haggard wrote. He came singing their songs. He came feeling their brokenness. Was he a prisoner? No. But he came in like one. See, Paul says, I will become all things to all people. All of this, Paul will do. And verse 23 elaborates, I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I might share with them in its blessings. I love this clarification by Paul because Paul is very clear about his intention here of what it means to win. The goal is not just to identify with them the goal is not just to step into their lives and just to hang out and to be honest for some of us that's where we are we go and we hang out with them we enter into their lives their homes their joys their struggles and we do life with them we hang out with them and yet when we leave they have not seen christ any clearer and paul is clear that's not the goal In fact, what Paul is saying is that our ultimate goal necessarily shouldn't even be conversions. That's important, but that's not ultimate. That's not the finish line for Paul. We're not in it, you see, just to check mark a box. Okay, I shared with him the good news, check. Okay, I won him over, check. Okay, he got baptized, became a member, check. Those are all wonderful things, but that's not the finish line for Paul. Those are all just wonderful markers along the race, but the finish line and the ultimate goal for Paul It's not conversion, it's sharing. He says that I may share with them in its blessings. What is Paul saying here? Not that he would do these things to earn God's blessing, but that already actually I have the blessings, and I want to share it. I want to draw them close for that. I want them to draw close so that they can feel what I have felt, so they can see what I have seen. So they can have the joy, the security, the contentment, and blessing that I have. The taste of the heavenly life that I have now. I want them to share in it. We want to share with people. We want to share with our neighbors, our friends, our families. We, want to, we face the same suffering as you do. We suffer under the same stress. We carry similar difficulties. We are broken in the same way. We have the same hardships. But you know what? I can do it with endurance. And I can count it as joy. And they asked, you can count suffering as joy? How? I said, let me share with you. Let me show you how. We can show the world, whether we are rich or poor, that we are completely content in the riches that we have in Christ. I'm like, what? What does that mean? Well, can I share with you? Can I show you? We can share with the world, I want to be successful too. I want to be good stewards of the resources I have too. But I'm not suffocated by those things. I'm not bound by those things. Those things don't dictate my identity. What? How? What could I share with you? You see, this is the natural and logical progression of the Christian life. You have, few have tasted and seen the goodness of Christ. Paul says it will flow into sharing. You no, know, Cicero states if a man should ascend, ascend alone and behold clearly the structure of the universe and the beauty of the stars, there would be no pleasure for him in the awe inspiring sight, which would have filled him with delight if he had someone to whom he could describe what he has seen. You know what Cicero is saying here? He's just stating what we all know to be true that when you and I experience something beautiful, that when you and I see something that we truly treasure and delight in, our natural response will be to praise it and then to share it. If you have tasted the sweetness of Jesus, it will overflow out into praise and into sharing of the blessings that we have because you want people to experience what you have seen or have experienced. We do this all the time. I know you do because I follow you on social media. It is no different with the gospel. In order to effectively share the good news of Christ, it starts with you and I diving deeper into who Christ is and what he has done for you and who you are in his presence and it is from that security and comfort and that strength that you and I are able to enter into the lives of our family members, our friends, our neighbors, our coworkers, and point them to the work of Christ on the cross and say, you see that there? That's where I find my joy. That's where I find my hope. That's where I've seen the love that I could not find anywhere else. Could I share it with you there? The question for us naturally, because man, that sounds hard, like such hard work. How will I be able to sustain this over the long haul, over my entire life? How will I find the strength moment by moment, day in and day out? How will I have the motivation to continue to live my life in this way? Well, Paul shows us and explains us, which is the point number three to win the prize. Take a look at verse 24 to 27 with me. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we and and imperishable. Sorry. So I do not run aimlessly, I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Paul uses an athletic metaphor for the Christian life. He says, I'm not like the boxer that just beats the air randomly. I'm not like the runner who runs without any sort of direction. And the mistake for us would be to look at this analogy that Paul makes and walk away thinking, okay then, self-control, be more disciplined, I got it. That's what I need to do. I need to be the most strong. I need to be the most faithful and the most holy. And how will I get there? I need to be self control. No, that's not what we should walk away with. Because the heart of the analogy is in verse 25. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. The athlete has self-control. That's the key. You want to be rooted consistently in your identity. You don't want to waver. You want to be flexible in your approach, engage others where they're at. And not just stay there, but win them over to Christ, to be winsome, to be faithful in your love for Jesus, in your pursuit to win others. He says, be like an athlete. Not that you are the most quick, not that you are the most faithful, not that you are the most agile or charismatic or talented, but in your self-control. Be like an athlete. You know, some of us know, but one of the things that I like to do for fun is I like to watch bodybuilders eat. Yeah, I know, that's me. I like to... It makes sense. Look at me. Right? I like to watch bodybuilders eat. Right? And I like to watch what they eat because they eat the most disgusting things. It's not because of that. It's because I so appreciate the discipline. They eat six, seven meals a day. They go to sleep, and they wake up in the middle of the night to eat and then go back to sleep. One bodybuilder, he was showing, you know, he was showing the... Uh, he was showing the viewer, I guess, sorry, um, what it looks like uh, a day in his life. And he was describing how he is so tired from chewing. He got rice, he put it in his you know, blender. He got tilapia, put it in his blender. He got eggs and vegetables, put it in his blender, put protein powder and a little bit, bit of water and he blends it and he just drinks it because he needs to eat the meal But he is so tired of chewing, and the grossest thing is he's drinking it, and he's saying, it's so chunky. I was like, ah! But the discipline. Athletes at the highest level are there largely because of their discipline and self-control. They watch their sleep. They watch what they eat. They time their schedule so that they can peak at the appropriate time. They have the utmost self-control in all things. And that's what Paul is encouraging us to do. And already, maybe you hear this and you feel yourself saying, oh, self-control. The one thing out of the many things I don't have. Oh, I tried. I tried to be more disciplined. I tried to have self-control. And I was doing okay for a little bit, but, oh. The law of averages, you know. I came back to... i'm supposed to be and you know what what's odd is that that's probably the wrong understanding of self-control according to the scriptures what's odd is that when you look up that phrase or that word self-control in the biblical dictionary the definition for self-control actually is defined as having the ability to control your emotions the ability to control how you feel And that's a little bit different from what we think of when we think about self control. Because you see, when you and I think about self control, we immediately think about discipline, the shaping of our actions and the bending of our will. We want to grit our teeth and pull up our bootstraps and just do it out of our sheer will. Sheer will, sorry. We will exercise self control. But the problem here is that the Bible is talking about self control not as a mastery of the will but as a mastery of the heart. So when he says, be self-controlled, what he's saying is, pay careful attention to your heart. Don't just pay attention to your thoughts or your mind, but it's a matter of the emotion. You see, what you and I maybe don't see so clearly is that everyone in this room is disciplined. We all do exercise self-control, but it's just a matter of Where is your self-control and discipline geared toward? Where is it aimed at? For some of us, it's working out physically. Some of you guys, I talk to you and it's like, man, how are you so disciplined in that way? Some of you guys are super, super self-controlled and disciplined in how you manage your your finances. All of us are disciplined and self-controlled in some way. But What Paul is getting at here is if you want to win the prize, you need to have the right prize and the right goal in mind. That's why Paul says, run with the prize in mind. The key to self-control here is to have the right motivation. So what to say when we find ourselves not having self-control in all things the gospel entails? Well, could I suggest to you, maybe, that you might be operating under the wrong motivation that you are running after the wrong prize saint augustine says it this way he says sin is actually a disordered love you see you and i were created and called to love god and his people but in our sin we have chosen to love other things more we have chosen to love our careers more we have chosen to love our pleasures more our money more our power more our prestige more Whereas what Paul calls it in these verses, you are running after perishable reeds. There is a hierarchy of love intended by God for his sons and daughters. And when that love, when that hierarchy becomes disordered, there is a disordered love, and thus we live fractured lives and our lives spiral out of control. You and I are built to be driven by motivation, built toward gearing our lives up for a prize, And what Paul is saying here is that prize has to be the eternal life in the saving work of Jesus Christ, the imperishable wreath. So practically, how is it that we can go daily reorienting our lives? How do we keep the imperishable wreath of a prize in mind? The eternal security, love, truth, and grace of Jesus Christ as our first and foremost love? Day by day, moment by moment, we preach the gospel to ourselves. friends. The beauty of the gospel painted all throughout 1 Corinthians 9. You see, the beauty of Paul's words here are rooted in just truth that there is someone who is greater than you you and I who had the perfect self-control because he ran the race with a perfect prize in mind. And that person is Jesus Christ. Scholar and theologian, Morna Hooker, says it like this, Christ himself became what we are. He pivoted. He entered into our lives and became what we are. Why? So that we might become what he is. Philippians 2 tells us Jesus did not consider it beneath him. In his freedom, he chose. He did not consider it robbery. He was equal with God and chose to come down. To die a criminal's death, Jesus showed us not just by example but by empowerment what it looks like to relinquish our rights and our privileges. He showed us what it looks like to come into our lives singing our songs. And he did all of this because he had a singular goal in mind. Came in the likeness of a servant in human flesh to draw you and I closer to him. To bring redemption and to die for our sins. Hebrews 12.2 says at best, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. For the joy set before him, the author writes, he looked at the cross, Jesus did, and he chose to die for us, to suffer hell for you and I, ripped apart in his flesh, died a criminal's death, to pay a sinner's wages. Why? because he had the appropriate joy set before him. as you and I. So that you and I could be drawn closer to him. So that you and I can be freed, called son and daughter of the father to give you and I the blessing of joy of heavenly life because we are his prize. We are his joy and we are his goal. Friends, what prize Are you running for? What is it that you are running so hard after? The singular focus of your life? Your identity in Christ, the freedom that you have found, the love that you have felt, the mercy that you have received, is it compelling you? Is it leading you to a life pursuing the imperishable wreath of eternal life found in the presence of the Father? Or are you like a boxer just running, or sorry, punching aimlessly at the air, running without any sort of direction? Friends, if we can preach the gospel daily to ourselves, every single day, moment by moment, that our identity will be rooted and found in the security and love of Jesus Christ, that we will find rest there, that we will find joy there, that it will overflow in the sharing to make our neighbors, our co-workers, our friends, our families, co-heirs in the kingdom of Christ. Let me pray and close for us today. Lord, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. And we thank you for just meeting us here. God, we thank you and just, the gospel just makes sense. That it is something that comes into our life and just just not leave us as we are. But that just day by day, moment by moment, God, that it changes us from the inside out. It changes, God, the way that we look at our friends, our communities, our family members, our coworkers. And God, give us courage and strength this week that we will be able to, God, share with them just the blessing and the love and all that we have found in you. God, we love you so much. Help us love you more. We pray all of this in your son's wonderful name. Amen.